The Ukrainian offensive has been spectacularly successful so far and has left Russian forces completely off balance in the northeast and under increasing pressure in the southwest. Over the last week or so, Ukrainian forces have staged a truly unprecedented counteroffensive, driving Russian occupying forces almost entirely out of the Kharkiv Oblast while continuing to apply pressure to Russian positions around Kherson and Donbass. U.S. officials say that uh, during their retreat, many Russian troops actually fled back over the border into Russia. This is the most serious military defeat that Putin had faced in, in more than 20 years in power. Okay, I think you get the point. Ukraine has been kicking a lot of ass lately. As of this recording, Ukrainians have liberated more than 6,000 kilometers of their land in a matter of days that the Russian troops occupied since they invaded back in February. The Ukrainians launched their counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region nearly two weeks ago, catching Russian occupiers by surprise. Town after town is liberated every day or so, and people constantly check their social media accounts to see how far Ukrainian troops made it from one hour to the next. At this pace, some military observers believe that Ukraine can push Russian invaders behind pre-February occupation borders in a matter of months. Of course, that would be optimistic, given how entrenched the Russian occupiers are in the South, but very possible nonetheless. All these recent gains, as well as the fighting around Kyiv and missile strikes around the country, have cost Ukraine dearly. Since February, the United Nations says that there are at least 14,059 civilian casualties to date, with 5,767 people killed and 8,292 people injured. But those numbers are likely much higher. And while Ukrainian troops have fought amazingly over the past seven months, they've suffered incredible losses as well. Costs for Ukraine's rebuilding so far is around $350 billion. These are some really despairing numbers, but the very fact that Ukraine is still standing as an independent nation against the so-called second most powerful military on earth speaks to the spirit of Ukrainians' desire to be free from Russian tyranny and how so many experts in the West underestimated Ukraine's ability to stand up for itself. Of course, I wasn't one of them, something I made clear during my many television appearances at the start of the war. You know, there's a lot of unexpected talk when it comes to Russia's actions, because you mentioned there that Ukrainians really did not believe initially that Russia would take this action. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the resiliency of the Ukrainian people, their resolve. Is this something that was also surprising to see? The resolve definitely was not something that was surprising to see in regards to this invasion, because one, this is their land and Ukrainians are uniquely different. And I think that's the main thing that we are, that people outside of Ukraine are realizing if people believe even just a little bit of Putin's propaganda that the Ukrainians and Russians are brothers, ironically, Russia is beating and killing and raping and pillaging their so-called brothers. Um, but you see that the Ukrainians are particularly unique. They, they welcome the Russians with 
a lot of cocktails with AK-47s, with whatever type of firepower they have. They weren't welcoming them with borscht. Right now, I'm back in Ukraine, making podcasts and catching up with my friends. Welcome back to Black Diplomats. I miss you all, but I'm back and ready to give you all some great content about Ukraine as it fights the Russian occupiers. I had to take a few months off in the States to get my mind right and rest from all of the terrible things that I experienced while covering the war. I have so much to share with you over the next few months about the things that I've experienced and the reporting that I've done. This week, I want to introduce you to three Ukrainians, two of whom I know very well, and let them share with you how this war has impacted them personally, starting with a woman I've known for a while. When I met her some 13 years ago, she was helping Americans learn Russian and Ukrainian. Now, because of two Russian invasions, she's doing something completely different. Yeah, well, um, first of all, I would say that Russian invasion started not on 24th of February 2022. It's actually started in the end of February um, 2014. Uh, after um, Revolution of Dignity, or Yeramaidan, uh, as it's no, well known around the world. Um, I guess um, this is a more important thing, because this was the time when um, Russia annexed Crimea Peninsula, and um, it was a huge invasion on the east of the country. And now we have a full-scale invasion uh, since 24th of February 2022. Um, as you said before, yes, my career is pretty much interesting because I'm a translator and I was a manager in Novomova where we met. Um, and, well, um, I actually wanted to go abroad to continue studying but then my dad happened and it changed a lot in my life, um, like major changes. And um, after 2014, I've met so many people who wanted to stay and Yevra uh, Maidan made this impact as well to stay in uh, Ukraine and to, to, to make changes. So um, I've started as a volunteer in a project with the drones, which at some point became my regular job because, you know, like when you spend so much of your, yourself and much of time into this, um, in, into some project, you've become, um, a, so to say, a treasury of knowledge about something. So it becomes your part of your life and you make a profession of it. So I guess that's how I happened to work with uh, drones. And um, uh, we need to say that, uh, I don't know like how you say it in the United States, like the drones, it's like uh, all equipment, all vehicles or all aerial vehicles, land and sea vehicles, which is un unmanned. So um, our company is working with, Aerial like UAVs and quadcopters and uh, and then ground vehicles, um, as well with as remote stations, 
the major idea since 2014 was to make possible for Ukrainian soldiers to um, conduct tasks without being um, actually killed in action. Um, because when you have remotely operating something, it uh, gives you an opportunity to save your life bigger than other than you just like, you know, running in the field, um, putting yourself in a danger. But it helps a lot and it keeps up the spirit of uh, a lo- many of soldiers because with, uh, with that, like when you're being shelled with artillery, it's hard to fight back with a rifle. So you need something as strong and as heavy and powerful uh, as they have. So whether it's made like um, in some small shop, but it's effective. Until 2014, there was no army, so to say, in Ukraine. So uh, basically everything what um, our... um, plants were doing factories uh, about like military vehicles of any kind it was all for expert and uh, not so much for Ukrainian army itself when I think about Katerina she reminds me of a lot of Ukrainian artists and people who are intellectuals right she's a very mild-mannered person At the same time, she's literally the the face or the communications face of a company that is designing vehicles that essentially lead to people's deaths, right? You don't associate that with Katerina, right? You don't associate that with a lot of Ukrainians who are doing this because a lot of these people are musicians. They are painters. They do a whole bunch of things that are not associated with war. I do not associate Katerina's personality with war. I think that if Ukraine was not fighting Russians, she would be a tour guide. She would be a cultural ambassador. She would be doing something artsy. Something that really amplifies her English language skills. I think that she would be engaging foreigners about how dope her country is. It was terrible. I mean, uh, I've never seen my mom so scared. And um, like she was all the time on the phone. Um, And um, our first night we spent in the metro in the subway and so many people like you know just uh, with small suitcases with pets uh with rap like people took their pets inside the subway and staying there all night even though it's like was really you need to know that in february in ukraine it's really cold like it's uh very high moisture uh, in the air and it's it's freezing and I remember that it was like the not, not the worst one of the worst nights in my life 
and while we were staying there we at least three times we heard like huge explosions just above our heads um i remember that we um in the morning after curfew ended we get out from the metro and just like um just like that like it was just five minutes maybe um there was uh, air alarm and uh again explosions 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 you cannot really fully anticipate the understanding of full invasion until it started so whether i had this emergency backpack or i didn't it still was a surprise and and not in really good not in a good way surprise because nothing can prepare you prepare you for um for for a war unless you're of course you're in the military services which is like you know it's your profession so it's it's what you do but for civilians it's uh, it was terrible what was more interesting is that uh, my friends from like this socially active uh, circle who are politically engaged and socially engaged, they were much more prepared than my, you know, regular friends who are just, you know, living their lives, um, working and uh, having kids, families. They were more lost and people like this are so many of them like my neighbors i i remember i saw them in front of um of the lift in the building and i was telling them that they need to get their things and just leave and it's better to leave somewhere like to the west or a little bit southern from kiev and um, some of them went to their parents' house, uh, houses were, which are in um, Irpin or Bucha. And it's also like, you know, it, it's just like a cherry on the top of a cake. Um, because you have to worry about um, people around you and trying to... Um, to save your face and not to panic in front of your family with whom I was staying, but at the same time trying to organize a vacation of people from set places. And it was like nothing in my life prepared me for this. I don't know, I, I became more punctual. <laughs> um, I've, um, um, you start to enjoy simple things and um, you, it's, it's like um, you're planning and not planning at the same time because all your uh, like plans they are being interrupted by war, so you cannot have long-term plans. So you are short-term planning. And um, 
I had so many plans, you know, like uh, do um, a repairment work uh, of my place and to help my mom and um, to start a new project. And then work happened and you just get your priorities in, in a little bit different place, like your uh, material things, they like you said goodbye to them and you teaching yourself not to miss them. Like, you know, that this house where you are, it's not for forever. Your books, they probably will burn, will burn and you have to accept that. And what matters is uh, people around like your mom, your grandparents, and to make sure that they can survive all of it. So, um, yeah, it was a huge uh, shift from materialistic and um, a regular regular life to, I don't know, I, I cannot say spiritual, or anything you know you there is a saying that there are no um disbelievers in the war it, you just like believe in the high power and that the karma is a bitch and it will come to those who are uh, who are bad i first met dimitro potemkin around 2017 when i was in ukraine working on a story about how russian disinformation was targeting the u.s and I was told that he was one of the best possible people to talk to on the subject. He wears many hats. His work started off in civil society as an activist fighting against the Viktor Yanukovych regime and participating in various capacities in the Orange Revolution of 2004 and the Euromaidan of 2013, which were revolutions that led to changes of power here in Ukraine. His current work has him fighting disinformation of all kinds, especially about Ukrainians. Let me first of all say that uh, th this kind of uh, disinformation, uh, it actually kills. It's, it's not just wrong. You know, it's, it's not just, you know, a bad thing. Uh, this type of uh, myths that, that Ukrainians are Nazis, uh, they make... Uh, such people as I met in, uh, in, in Donetsk come here and kill us. With the Western audiences, uh, this is not that harsh, of course. But the mechanism is the same and the, the model is the same. To actually uh, deprive Ukrainians uh, of the Western support. And that's why uh lots of russian efforts uh, and lots of kremlin's efforts are spent to actually uh, disseminate this type of propaganda and uh, uh, in many cases it works unfortunately when the war started dimitro who believes in nonviolence, realized that such an approach would not work with russian occupiers so he went to pick up a gun to fight but says COVID prevented him from doing so. Several of my friends uh, died in the fight, uh, not in the Kiev city, uh, but on the front lines. And uh, 
Some of them were my contacts and friends uh, from the uh, activism years. Uh, some of them joined the army from the nonviolent resistance because that was the moment that uh, it, it, it was the, the, the need to, 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 to switch to the armed resistance. Yeah, because unfortunately, nonviolent resistance uh, not always helps. Nonviolence had never been kind of uh, uh, belief, kind of religious belief for me. It, it had been uh, just a way to act. And, and not the way, but a way to act. And, and just a, um, a generally, you know, historically more efficient uh, and, and nice way to act. Uh, but I, I, I never perceived it as, as the only way, and, and I never perceived it as a universal way to act. So um, I always uh, realized that actually there are, there are cases when, uh, when armed resistance is needed. So, and, and we just got such a case. That's it. This war was not in use for me, and I had experience uh, in a Russian concentration camp back in 2014. So basically, I was kind of ready to to face uh, the war and and even death. And actually, for me, that was kind of way out of the concentration camp because when I realized that I was ready to to face the risk of death, I, I started resisting, and I announced the hunger strike. I stopped working for them because they they forced us to load explosives uh, and. Uh, I didn't want to kill and to, to, to help kill uh, Ukrainian soldiers. In my conversation with Dimitro, we discussed arguably one of the most misunderstood and misconstrued groups of people in Ukraine, members of the Azov Regiment, which is a special operations detachment of the National Guard of Ukraine's infantry and under control of the Ministry of Internal Affairs. You may have heard about them several months ago as they fought bravely to defend the Azovstal steel plant, the last standing line of defense in Mariupol before it completely fell to the Russian occupiers. Its surviving members surrendered after many of their comrades died defending Mariupol. The Azov regiment today, which numbers upwards of 2,500 soldiers pre-war, are heroes and liberators of their nation. But back in 2014, when they were known as the Azov Battalion, many of their members were in fact Nazi sympathizers and racists. One of its founding members, Andrei Beletsky, has a well-documented history of espousing far-right and white nationalist views. As far as far-right expert Anton Shinhoftsov explains, the original Azov Battalion was made up of football hooligans and far-right volunteers whose backgrounds were not properly checked. And although Azov was linked to far-right political forces at the beginning, they began politicizing in 2015, and most of its extreme members moved out of the regiment over the years. Now they are a diverse special operations detachment today. Of course, this is a very short and neat version of the bigger, more complex history of the Azov regiment. I'll do some episodes devoted directly to Azov in the future, and hopefully I'll bring some of their members on to the show. But Dimitro, who is one of the leading disinformation experts in Ukraine, wants to make one thing clear 
about Azov? Terrell, I, I don't think it's very complicated. Look, um, the thing is that uh, uh, Azov used to be a group uh, containing uh, Ukrainian right-wing, radical right-wing people. That That's true. And the, the thing is that uh, the trend in this group, uh, when it became part of the Ukrainian official uh, structures, Ukrainian state, basically, uh, was that uh, it it was uh, getting uh, liberal, and uh, now there are no reasons to claim that uh, that, uh, that that Azov uh, has Nazi company. I continue my life in Kiev. I uh, have a daughter, she's five years old. Uh, she's incredibly cute, and that's the biggest pain right now because of the war and kids. I care about her a lot. Eva Koroletz is the executive director of Razum Ukraine, which is the local version of the US-based Razum for Ukraine. Based in New York, it is a 501c3 that started in 2013 that supports short and long-term projects that help Ukraine defend itself against Russian aggression and assist Ukrainian civil society, among many other things. Since the Russian invasion in February, the organization has raised tens of millions of dollars that have gone to supporting Ukrainians working to rebuild the nation. I was in charity for quite a long time. I, I worked with scoliosis diseases, with spinal muscular atrophy, um, just uh, supporting kids and families uh, in hard situations. But then the war started. Uh, we create a lot of different projects which support not just families or work with medical diseases, but they, they work with people on the front line, with hospitals, with doctors, with people in need, which need food, clothes, and so on. Eva started off with Erasm as a volunteer in 2017. From there, she became a project manager. A year ago, she says the Erasm board selected her as the executive director here in Ukraine, but her work really kicked into full gear when the war started. Originally from Odessa, she and her young daughter were forced to flee like millions of other internally displaced people to safer locations in Ukraine. But her passion to help people never stopped. She has a long professional history of supporting young people, and Razum is just her most recent effort to do just that. I have uh, a lot of friends which went right now to protect our country in military. They are painters, uh, singers, they worked in IT, I don't know, uh, musicians, marketing, uh, medicine, from different... Uh, they lived before the war in another world. That's not about their choice, that's about they have to protect us. That's why they are there right now. They are not professional military. They are just... That's, that's, they need to do this right now. And uh, they sometimes they send me photos from the front line. Photos from Bucha and Irpin. If I'm just begging you, that's horrible photos. And usually 
uh, you wouldn't see them in the internet because of people don't want to see those things people don't want to listen horrible stories even films they don't they want to see films with happy end but not with bad end but these photos they are about bad end when Eva brought me to Razum's facility in western Ukraine she made it clear that I should not take photos we don't want to give off their location she said they don't want to be targets of Russian missiles. As we walked around the factory, I was greeted by volunteers who spent countless hours mobilizing aid to the front lines of the war and supporting internally displaced people in the country. Razum's team has a lot of initiatives going on now, including this one. We have another program, for example, Toy Drive, that we support kids which lost their parents at the war from 2014. Their parents gave the biggest price they could for our life, for our independence. And we just want to say thank you and we want to support them. That's not a lot of things. That's um, We take some stuff for school, some bags, uh, pencils and so on, warm clothes, uh, some uh, sweets and so on so that's like present for kids to say thank you thank uh, for your father we remember about them we want just to support to say thank you one of the things that eva and many other people here in ukraine worry about is the rest of the world forgetting about them pain of other people will hurt you less and less and less and in one moment you just will forget about it and that's a huge fear here. We do understand that our independence, our country, who we are and there we live, that's totally our responsibility. First of all, that's we need to take care about this, but we need help. We asking for help because the price for our independence right now is incredibly high. I lost a lot of friends. I'm so sorry. Uh, I lost a lot of friends at this war and I scare that I will lose more. We're begging you, we do understand that you can take the gun and to be with us. We're not asking you about this, but we're asking you tell to people in your country that you do understand Ukrainian, that that's not okay to do what Russian do that there are a lot of kids which lost their parents. We have no idea how to survive this winter because we don't know what temperature will be. Would we have uh, light in our flats? Would we have gas in our flats? That's not about how much we would. Would we have at all? Did this war make you think differently about Russians than you did before? I don't have energy to think about them because many friends told me you need to understand they don't have information uh, that's all about politic um, their news tv shows they are showing them another reality i don't care they have google and they have internet and he who wants to get information he will open this and he will get information if they don't want to do this that's not my problem to explain them and to, to do something with them. No. If they want, they will do. No, 
that's not my problem. I just don't want to think about them. I don't want to see them. Let them live in Russia how they want. What would they create in Russia? They would have this. I want to create here in Ukraine beautiful, independent, European Ukraine. That's what I want. I know you say you don't take, you, you're very bad at taking care of yourself. Yeah. But do you try to take care of yourself because you're a human and you need to do that? So do you try, I mean, have you tried or are you thinking about trying to think about yourself? I know that I need to and not just need, I have to because um, first of all, from these depend, can I continue what am I doing or not? I'm incredibly tired. We work here 24 hours a day. It's serious. Uh, people from uh, the board can call us and say, hello, I'm on the board uh, with uh, staff for hospital. Uh, tell me address of warehouse. I'll be there in a few minutes. Uh, tell, tell me where to go. Give me address. And you woke up, you're um, doing documents, you're calling to warehouse, so you continue your work. I understand that I need to have a rest, but I can't. If I know that there are asks or messages from people in need and I didn't answer them, I can't fall asleep. I know that I have to, but I can't. It, it is hard. How many hours of sleep do you think you get every day? <laughs> oh, I hope my mom wouldn't listen to this conversation because she would kill me. And finally, I will have a sleep. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, I woke up every night three or four times. Just imagine air raid. Um, if you want to try what it is to be Ukrainian right now, we have uh, an app in uh, f your phone. You can download it about air raid in Ukraine. For example, put Kharkiv on your phone and every time then you will hear uh, air raid, put one doll or I don't know, for us or for another charity organization. But you can't even imagine how many times a day we hear this. And that will be just a reminder for you. But imagine that every time then the air raid sounds, one building destroyed and some people died. So just leave, I don't know, a week with this app. Try this and you will understand just for a while what it is to be Ukrainian right now. And imagine that then it is a raid. You need to take your kids in a safe place. Is it night? Is it day? Is it summer, winter? No matter. You need to do this. For all the success Ukraine's military is experiencing repelling Russian occupiers from their territory, it comes at a heavy toll, not only for the soldiers, but for folks like Hatia, Dmitro, and Eva. Thank you for tuning in to Black Diplomats podcast this week. So check my social media handle at Terrell J. Star on Twitter. And also look out for next week's episode. We're also revamping the Black Diplomats website 
So look out for a whole new design next month. Also next month, I'm also opening up new social media platforms for Black Diplomats listeners to engage each other. That's another thing to look out for. And one last thing. Let us know on my Twitter handle, again, at Terrell J. Star, what you think about this new format. That's it for now, and talk to you next week.